0: My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I have them a shade. but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. augmented every second in your home your car your pocket and now your body itself obvious right but as you google search peering into the world google presents to you are you absolutely certain that someone or something isn't peering back at you google has summoned a homunculi a golem a type of cyber frankenstein that was foretold by occulted author hp lovecraft who described these As the old ones here to help us better understand these faustian foes and keep our heads above the deluge of digital delusion is the wilderness school mystic invisible college adept maverick matthews who joins me mystic mark here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode episode 198 we're almost at 200 folks enjoy this episode with maverick matthews
1: So this entity is, you know, according to the Hebrew tradition, Lilith was the wife of Adam before Eve. One of the lesser known concepts of that was that she would make love to Adam on top. And so in all the rites concerning Lilith, the woman is on top. And there's, there's a lot of orgies and sexual rites that are associated with the worship of Lilith uh, or Shabnegarath or the goat of a thousand young. You can also trace this back to Babylonian belief systems and there's a modern the Babylonians describe an entity and we have a modern name for this entity the name doesn't come from Babylonian but they give the exact same description and a lot of people are familiar with this. it's the idea of the succubus a non entity that comes to you at night to steal your seed in order to create demonic beings fascinating (laughs) so that's the side of this entity her number is 1225 Again, that derives from her name in Hebrew, being numbers all being added up. That's kind of related to gematria. So we got two more, two more, and these are pretty interesting ones. Okay. Okay. So now we have Mercury. Mercury. Uh, Mercury is associated in this Necronomicon cosmology with an entity called Nyarlathotep. Okay. And and we know which metal Mercury is associated with. Right. you study the Greek cosmology, you know that Mercury is kind of like a winged messenger, right? Nyarlathotep is the one who allows people to communicate with the old one. So supposedly this entity can take the form of a man who is tall, always wears black robes. The only difference being it doesn't have a face. This book goes back thousands of years and we'll get into that in a minute but one of the things I want to really point out is that th- there really has been a tradition among people who become initiated into the esoteric mysteries of writing works of fiction and using narratives from esoteric mystery schools as part of their fiction and sometimes it's like in the case of H.P. Lovecraft totally ripping them off and and sort of exposing them. There have been many necronomicon. The, first of all, the word necronomicon comes from, from the Greek "necros," which just means dead, and nomos, which means law. So it just means the way of the dead or the law of the dead. My name is Maverick Matthews. Technically speaking, Maverick Matthews is an adopted pseudonym. This kind of i I'm breaking a pretty huge secret here. I grew up Matthew, I'm originally from Hawaii. I got the name Maverick organically while working on a dive boat in Hawaii. We had a pretty crazy day where I went out with the crew. We were fishing, one of the outriggers broke and I climbed out on an outrigger to fix it, which is very, Ill- and the captain of the boat started and we got a Loose Maverick on board. Keep your eyes peeled for the Loose Maverick. Nickname stuck. I started working on the dive boat under the name. When I went to film and television, one of the more famous shows I got to work on, I was a producer on Duck Dynasty. All of my film credits started going under Maverick. It became sort of an adopted moniker that I ran with. And then when I really started to become a public person, I realized the value in insulating your private life from your public life. And this became a really good way for me to do that. And also helped to delineate the differences in the psychology of being a public person and being a private person, because I think obviously we both know a lot of people have trouble with that. So Mm. my my interest in, well, one of the ways I like to define myself as a non-academic historian, I've always been in the history. A lot of people would agree with me. I think that academia has a bad habit of just kind of ignoring large subsets of information. So I go down these rabbit holes and find out things about people like Pythagoras or the Count of St. Germain or whoever I'm into at the time. And I like to really get lost in that, in that mythos. And that's kind of one of the things that I do. I do, I wear a lot of hats. And of course I have my own podcast now, Pepper for Your Steak. So I get to talk to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, just checked that out. You did a new series or segment with the past guest, our friend Nick Hinton, and yeah, it's called Dystopian now. It's hilarious. I love the I love the format. I love your rapport with Nick. It's cool to see Nick in a, like a comedic position cuz he's usually like just kind of reporting on stuff he's researched or Lately he's been talking about his own personal experiences, but yeah, man, it's I, I do enjoy that. I've been I've been following Pepper for your stakes since you first appeared on Tinfoil Hat. And what's funny is I started working for Sam Tripoli that same the same year that you went on for the first time. And what's interesting is when I met Sam Tripoli, I gave him a copy, a copy that I had had for at least six or seven years, a copy that I'd probably read 10 times of The Caballion, right? I gave him this book, The Caballion, and sure enough, you show up on the show and you're like, hey, Sam, I got this really awesome book for you. And I'm like, damn, this is a synchronicity. I'm going to talk to this guy eventually. And At that point, I wasn't working for Sam in the same capacity I am now. I was just booking his spiritual podcast zero which i think if we haven't had you on there yet it's overdue we got to get you on there but yeah so there is a sort of synchronicity there that rung my bell and put you on my radar way back then and yeah man it's it's a pleasure to have you here and you also have a wilderness school right a snow leopard your snow leopard wilderness school as well
1: yeah the snow leopard wilderness institute is an invisible college So there's no campus, the wilderness is the campus and most of the teaching comes from mama nature. I was really fortunate to study under outward bound school for many months as a wilderness educator. I took their program called the wilderness leadership semester when I was 19 and I spent three and a half months in the wilderness and it was an extremely formative experience in my life. And I just wanted to to be able to share that with others.
0: Now, when you say wilderness, let's, let's get specific biome region. Where were you?
1: So with, when I was studying with Outward Bound, it was through Colorado Outward Bound School. So I studied the Sierra outside Leadville, Colorado in January of 99. And so it was, you know, 30 below. So we learned extreme winter campcraft, and I got avalanche certifications and we sound, we summited Mount champion. We did a lot of cool stuff in in terms of wilderness bushcraft in the winter. And then I studied rock climbing, traditional climbing in Joshua Tree for a month. We rafted the San Juan and Colorado rivers on sit on, sit on top kayaks. I got to hike the maze in the Canyonlands, which was pretty epic, where Edward Abbey supposedly decorated a hidden Christmas tree that is still decorated to this day. Edward Abbey, kind of the guy who started the whole eco-terrorism movement.
0: But you don't have to tell me twice. I read the book Monkey Wrench <laughs> Gang. I loved
1: it. Okay. <laughs> For our listeners who may not know, an incredibly inspiring figure. I'm not on the terrorism side of, of oh. you know ecological protection, but he, he came around in a time when the national parks were getting all their roads paved. And uh, he has an amazing book called Desert Solitaire. I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. About, about being a park ranger in Arches National Park. And he talks about the difference between a natural national park where you essentially have to experience it on foot or on horse at the most or a bicycle or something. And then he experienced it when they paved the roads and brought in the masses. So I'm I'm I was really lucky to get to go into some truly wild places with Outward Bound where we were ninety miles from like the nearest dirt road, you know, hundreds of miles from civilization. Spend many weeks out there and it, when I say this is a formative experience, you know, it culminated into what they call a solo where you sit in one place and fast for four days and just reflect and connect with the universe. And I, if there's one takeaway from all of this that anybody I would recommend is that everyone try to facilitate that kind of experience in their life. So my outdoor school is a miniature version of that where for a couple of days or up to a week, we just go into the wilderness and it's just, gently directed by me. And it's a lot of being away from society, being away from all your distractions, definitely away from everything electronic and eating simply and connecting with mother nature.
0: Right. Right. And this is the world that Pythagoras and and his, you know, peers were in. I mean, of course, Greece was a, a, a place with cities and things were happening. But back then, I mean, from what we can estimate, or at least what academia tells us, they're living pretty wild. They're closer to the land than we are now. I mean, speaking for myself, I'm I'm in what's called the tri-state statistical area, which is like considered the largest urban aggregate area in the whole world, right? It's it's this yeah. area from Philadelphia up to like the Southern end of Connecticut. And yeah, man, anytime I can get out in nature, it's like a a breath of fresh air does not even add it. It's like a breath of soul, you know, like reinvigorating my soul.
1: Yeah. You know, there's, I'm not just to clarify, I'm not like a super rock and crystals like Sedona type guy, but I absolutely am spiritual. I do believe in there is a divine combinatory power that can easily be summarized as love but there is a force in the universe that you can connect to that will inspire you, that will teach you. And all you have to do is really strip yourself from all the distractions and it, we, we don't live in a society where that's encouraged. And in, in fact, it's quite the opposite is encouraged. And I do believe that's intentional.
0: Mm.
1: And you know, as everybody knows, we as a country, are experiencing some pretty dystopian times right now. You mentioned that show that I do with Nick. Nick's one of my closest friends. I talk to him every day and we, we, when you explore esoteric knowledge and, and really what's happening in the world and the way that, human beings tend to trend, it gets pretty heavy. You know, when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back is the famous quote and um, things up and just have some fun for a change. So I appreciate your compliments on that. And, uh, we're going to do a lot more of those because we both need it, you know, and it is important to go be serious and meditate. And the work of spirituality is work. You know, it is effort. We, we as humans are put here to do a task and that is to know thyself and that is a hard work, but it doesn't mean you can't also have fun. So I'm learning to bring more fun into the picture. And that's why people like Sam Tripoli and all the comedians I think right now, I mean, certainly Joe Rogan, obviously, I think they're beginning to resonate with the population so much because they, they do realize that the work alone is not enough. It has to be framed in a real positive and light way. And that's where the word enlightening comes from, you know? So I've been kind of tangential all over the place here, but to bring no, it. Oh, well sort
0: said, of- man. That's a point that we all need to hear. And I agree with them. I'm glad you said it. I just saw Sam two weeks ago. He did a show at his comedy club that he owns out in New Jersey. And yeah, I mean, I've seen Sam perform at least four or five times now, and every time he, he adds something new, mixes it up, I always have a good time seeing who he brings along and what he has, you know, new in his set. But yeah, it's it's something that I can't live without. You know, I listen to a lot of conspiracy podcasts, but I probably listen to an equal amount of comedy podcasts just to keep that balance.
1: Absolutely. And it is, a, it's worked because you can easily get caught up in something and all of a sudden you're like, wow, man, not only is, is my focus dark, but my life is turning dark because of it. And then mm. aside from what we choose to work on, life puts you in different stations that are really challenging. And if you don't have the methodology to lighten your situation up, or at least take a break from it, you know, and I, I really encourage people to use techniques like exercise, meditation, yoga, you know, whatever you, whatever resonates with you. Those are the, those are your fallbacks, you know, and <laughs> I just did an awesome podcast today with Jim Gales that's going to come out on my show and he's so positive, man. One of the things that really resonates with me is how positive he is, but we both agreed that there's some heavy times coming and people need to acknowledge that, but also not let it get them down, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah, I I have a sort of tightrope battle myself with that because I don't wanna get too holistic, so to speak. But then there's also this like there's this like thing where you're maybe too focused, like you said, in one area and it starts to drag your energy into that sort of reality. So you wanna be realistic and see what's actually coming to you, but at the same time, could you be sort of psychically pulling? that reality towards you, or maybe even just like stepping into another timeline because of that line of thinking? I mean, do you imagine that's possible? Do you ever entertain that type of thinking?
1: So I absolutely am a believer in manifestation. I think it has, like most things, the the basic core concept has been perverted. It's not like, you know, it can be as simple as like, I'm going to manifest a television set, but that's not, really what it is you know it's it's um it's the idea that we do become what we spend our time thinking about because that what we spend our time thinking about is our direction and there's a system in your body called the reticular activating system and it, it, it essentially can be summarized as the idea that there's so much information in the world you can't possibly process it all ever and so your brain is like a constricting valve And what you choose to think about is what you allow through that valve. And the reason you have to take this as a conscious process is because if you don't, things will sneak through. A good example of this, if you just want to see it in work or at work rather, is if you were to get a a different kind of car, it doesn't have to be a new car, any car. If you start driving a different kind of car, all of a sudden you'll see this car everywhere on the road. And you may not have viewed like, wow, there's a lot more of these than I realized, you know, Um, that's the reticular activating system. You have chosen to focus on a certain thing and all of a sudden it's everywhere around you. Well, this is true with every component of your life, whether it's health, your tribe, the people you want to be around. And one of the reasons I wanted to get into podcasting and one of the reasons I got into Hollywood was because I perceived a kind of conversation to be happening in certain places that I wanted to be a part of. And Hunter Thompson was really one of the people who, keyed me into this. My son's actually named after Hunter. And uh, I I realized that there were people having private conversations I wanted to be a part of. And there's a famous quote, I can't remember who it's by, but the quote is genius. Uh oh, excuse me, Simon. someone's trying to break in on. That
0: was the first time we've ever, <laughs> you, are you all right, you gonna break in?
1: No, no, it was another call, unfortunately.
0: Oh, I, <laughs> I haven't
1: figured out this. We're doing this over the phone. I haven't figured out how to prevent people from calling me while I do it.
0: <laughs> oh, no. I mean, we shouldn't have any interference if someone calls you as long as your, you know, ringer is on silent. We won't even notice. But I, you hung up saying, oh, someone's trying to break in. And I'm like, does he mean break into his house? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, God, you scared me.
1: Okay. Oh, sorry. Sorry. It's all right. Um, or was that? Let's see the conversation, the grand conversation, genius round the world stands hand in hand and one shock of recognition rings the whole circle. In other words, and Hunter actually had a quote that said, uh, and this is where the name of my school comes from. At the top of the mountain, we are all snow leopards. And what that means is it's not meant to be elitist. What it means is when you focus your energy to a razor sharp point, you, you are in a rarefied air. Not many people get the opportunity to do that. And, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, the circumstances you grow up in and, you know, paired with the amount of effort you put into things. But a few people get really lucky and get get to circulate among this high level of of, I would call philosophers around the world. And so I don't pretend to necessarily be one of those, but I think we can both agree that we, are blessed to to at least be on the periphery of this group of people. And it's pretty cool. And you can see the groups from time to time, you know, throughout history, if you look back like in the sixties and seventies, it was, you know, people like Hunter and easy and, and, you know, all the people who actually, some of them became perverted by the deep state or mechanisms that be, or what have you, but some of them were actual true seekers. And that conversation really ends up charting the direction of, culture and society. So it's not necessarily that I wanted to chart that direction so much as I wanted to to be present in that conversation because I think it's pretty epic. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And what I was going to say to that about, especially your point on being in this sort of new world where the oral tradition has been, I, I always say it's been revitalized in a way that is more interconnected than ever. Whereas in the past people learned by stories around the fire or what have you. Now we're all able to instantly and simultaneously share these stories with one another. And I mean, yeah, as a, as a podcaster, my credit, I mean, I go back to, you know, I only started two years ago podcasting Sam actually encouraged me after I started podcasting with him once or twice. And I had done podcasting before, but I didn't really put enough effort into it. So I give him credit for lighting a fire under my ass. But uh, but yeah, I remember listening to the Joseph Campbell archives while I was dishwashing and realizing why the hell did I waste time in college paying to learn when now I'm getting paid to learn, right? <laughs> I'm I'm doing this job that doesn't require me to have to listen to anybody, so I'll just put my headphones in, nobody yells at me, you know, that kind of job. And then I started finding more jobs where that was appropriate, where I could listen to whatever I want while I was working. I started becoming you know, delivery driver here and there, and I did that for a while. And that really motivated me to get into podcasting because I spent eight hours a day listening to not just great podcasts like tinfoil hat but just like weird obscure ones about history or science or you know I was just absorbing all this information and yeah we're all a part of it i think a lot of people don't realize the amount of free education that's available just through podcasting
1: yeah you know and one of the things that I was really fortunate to discover early on, and I, this is, you know, I don't get I don't have any affiliation with these guys, but I am gonna give a free plug here. Um, sadly it is an Amazon company, but the audiobook company Audible changed my life. And I became so obsessed with Audible that they ended up reaching out to me and made me the face of the company in their commercials for two years because I ended up being one of their biggest readers. <laughs> You know, I, I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books on there because I was I was in a position where I had so much free time and a lot of it was when I was in Hawaii managing a zip line where I would just be out in the forest, you know, taking care of the trees or whatever, or checking the lines. And I had hours and hours free and I just started digesting all kinds of books. And I've never really been into, I, I do like fiction, but when I got a little older, I was like, I don't, for whatever reason, I didn't feel like I had enough time Study history and philosophy, and so I just the idea that someone, you know, you don't have to use Audible. Use any audiobook company or any audiobook service. The idea that we live in a society where you can where where you can pay a tiny amount of money for someone to read you books is pretty nuts. You know, is it, that's like something that only kings had access to. Mm, you know, sit there and one read to you because a lot of people nowadays have a hard time reading. There are people who will read to you, and not only that. There are incredible voice actors who who make the story engaging, and you can just get lost in it. Mm. So, podcasts and audiobooks—they change the direction of my life, right. and that's available to everyone at minimal cost or or effort. So, yeah, I would encourage anybody who's interested in that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, man. And it is is—it is like this sort of invisible college that's rising up. I remember the first time I had ever learned about that concept was through a book called The Secret History of the World by Mark Booth. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. If you're not, I definitely recommend it. You probably are based on how many audible books you burned through. but But yeah, no, it's a great book and it basically takes you through the history of the mystery schools, but not just in that time period throughout every time period different variations of this concept of a mystery school and it really shows how history as we're told to go back to your earlier point you know academia is leaving a huge portion of it out for the most part they really only focus on the military political side of history and so much of it has been left out in the past the religious spiritual you know, faiths. I mean, that's where a lot of the history is hiding. And, and he, Mark Booth did a great job of sort of putting that together in a way that shows a sort of syncretic view of everything. Not that I totally put all my stock into syncretism, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a book I recommend. I'll, I'll give him a plug any day of the week.
1: I'll tell you a secret about that book. There are two versions. I'm extremely familiar with Mark's version. There's another one with of the exact same title with the with an author whose name is Jonathan Black. Yeah, and these are both these are both pseudonyms of secret authors. So and if I you have the to,
0: Jonathan Black version.
1: If you listen to both of these ver- books, you'll notice they have subtle differences in their story, very, very secret, subtle differences. So what 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 I could tell you is that in my experience, studying. So I I discovered that book really early on and that launched me into esoteric study. And then I found out about Manly P. You of course you probably know Manly P. Hall and uh, you know, the, uh, the work that he did, there's an amazing book secret knowledge of all ages or secret wisdom of all ages that he has. But the secret history of the world is an amazing primer. I will tell you that there are key pieces of the esoteric mystery schools that are left out because they don't give away all their secrets, one of the biggest rules for esoteric knowledge is that you can only give away so much. And, and the, the keystones of esoteric knowledge are preserved only for those who come searching for it. It's one of their main tenets: is you can't find your students. Your students have to come to you. So mm-hmm. I highly recommend those books, but it is with the caveat that they are gently perverted intentionally to test students. So that if you believe that that's the end all be all of the wisdom, you can easily be ferreted out and, and and discerned from true students of the esoteric mysteries who who find masters where the key components of the oral tradition are only transmitted orally. And if you listen closely, they allude to that multiple times in the book.
0: Mm.
1: Well, wow. So both are worth listening to or reading and comparing, but they serve as incredible primers because they do talk about so much and it's going to tie right in to to what I want to teach today about the Necronomicon and the old ones because many of the characters I'm gonna talk about today are mentioned in there and a lot of these esoteric mystery schools you know they had different versions of the same stories that all sort of sync up together but it does tie an interesting string through history that begins to reveal itself that you can definitely tell has been intentionally hidden.
0: well now i have an excuse to go and buy another copy of this book (laughs) and i'm also now i have some clarification because one of the my friends that i used to co-host this podcast with i gave him a copy of that book as a primer but i gave him a different version than i have i have like i said the jonathan black version i always just thought that maybe he decided okay this will be my pseudonym and then he decided to not use his pseudonym anymore (laughs) <laughs> and that's why it goes by Mark Booth. But wow, you taught me something new, man. I appreciate you sharing that. I've had that book for a long time. And I'll tell you what, my book collection has quadrupled since getting that book because it is a primer. It's, it's left so many more questions than answers. And I always direct people to that book, not to make it an end all be all but because i know it's it's gonna probably spur them down the same path i went to at least i hope i I don't think it happened with my buddy jay shout out to jay but uh, but yeah you can only hope you can't you know you could lead a horse to water you can't force him to drink and i learned this when i was a martial arts teacher after high school i had got my brown belt by then from my brazilian jiu-jitsu teacher it's not a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He taught me mixed martial arts, so I have a brown belt from his school. And yeah, I was a teacher for the younger students for a few years after high school, and really realized some of the the things that I was getting obsessed with reading and things like that. It was far easier to let my friends come to me to learn those things in the same way that you know we didn't go out at the martial arts school and knock on people's doors and say, oh, hey, do you want to come and sign up for martial arts? You know, the, the right students would just come through the door and they would either stick around and, and keep learning or they would get, you know, frustrated and, and leave at some point, right? And this kind of stuff is is the same way. You you can't force people into it. And, and that's a big part of what Sam talks about, you know, the rules of the ronin. Don't give knowledge to those who don't seek it.
1: That's it you know, and you can even see this in biblical texts where, you know, everyone's heard the quote, do not cast pearls before swine, but most people don't know the rest Mm. of that quote. Let's hear it. And the rest, the rest of that quote is do not, do not cast pearls before swine, lest they turn on you and trample them and devour you. So if you look at the world's prophets. uh, you notice that they all have at least a story of an untimely end. And the meaning of that is that you can't, you know, all all the mystery schools teach that you cannot give knowledge to the profane. It's not that they're not good people. It's not that they don't deserve it. It's just that some knowledge is too powerful and some stations in life. You're not prepared to deal with it. Anyone who, you know, they they say that the, the students of the Kabbalah had to be at least 40 well, I'm going to turn 44 next week. And I can tell you that I, I barely feel like an adult, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I I just look back at my twenties and thirties and I kind of cringe at not only the hubris I thought I had to change the world, but the, the idea that I, I knew even knew what I was talking about, <laughs> you know, but um, yeah. And, and the, the, the martial arts are a perfect example because if you ever see a martial arts school, that's like going out, trying to recruit people. Like that's a bad sign. You know, the best schools don't do that. They let people come to them and it requires discipline. It requires hard work and you have to push yourself along. And this is true with every, every worthy venture in this world, in my opinion.
0: Well, and you know, Quickly on that tangent, that's a big reason why my, and he's been a guest on my show, my uh, Sifu, it's why his school's not open anymore because unfortunately, you know, the, obviously the, the pandemic had a, a big part in it, but if he had more students, you know, maybe they would have survived it or, or maybe could have afforded to take a, a few years off and bring it back up again. But yeah, man, it's a tough, it's a tough business to be in when you're, you're basing it on merits and values because we don't live in that sort of society that incentivizes that. It incentivizes the opposite, you know, and incentivizes this sort of predatory thing. But,
1: yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, we're seeing a kind of a correction right now right. because we, we did end up in some times that were generated by weaker people and, you know, the universe corrects itself. It, it ebbs and flows. It's a natural process. It's just that the constricting and the ebbing is really painful, but if you keep striving and you're patient and dedicated, you know, things begin to flow again. And I do believe we're going to build stronger tribes and, and all the good stuff is coming. We just have to stay the course, you know?
0: Yeah. Well said. And I'm delighted to hear that at 44, you still feel young and like a kid. I'm only 28 and yeah, I, I sort of, feel like I've never grown up so maybe I'm with you there but we'll see I'm not not quite there yet but uh, but I also want to bring up something you said about prophets and their untimely demises I mean there's been a past guest on the show who told me that the title of the show my family thinks I'm crazy is kind of like the phrase a prophet is never a prophet in his own home country right I'm probably messing that phrase up but It goes along those lines and there's something to that where, you know, people do not, people do not have this sort of novelty that they do for not strangers, but it's almost like a, it's, it's something to do with the, like the, the fascination of another culture, right? We have this whole like new age movement that really kicked off because of the whole I mean, martial arts was a part of that, too. The whole Eastern influence that came across the United States after the Vietnam War, right? We have this big Eastern influence that hits the culture. And now we're in this sort of newer world where it really feels like they're just trying to homogenize it all into one global culture. And, yeah, I mean, now people in our little subculture are, are pretty much like, I'm out. I'm going off the grid. I'm going to go live in a wilderness area and just chill.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we're not meant to be one thing We're there's meant to, you know, there's supposed to be tremendous diversity and that's because the only way that we grow is through conflict. And that's a weird, you know, juxtaposition to have to deal with in this life in a sense that nobody wants conflict, but it's the only thing that causes growth. And so that's a weird position to be in as a human being and it does teach you that, you know, conflict doesn't have to always be graceless. It can also be done in a Socratic way where you honor both sides, like we were talking about earlier, but, um, we're, we're, we are going to tribe up again and we already see that and we, we already have different States with different colors. You know, this is, that's a, that's still a homogenized version of what's truly happening. We are all more similar then we are different, but those differences are also important. And, you know, leading to this talk, we're going to do about some dark, you know, like you know, maybe the left-hand path or the dark energy, or if you want to go as far as to say like evil, it does exist for a reason. And I, I don't pretend to know to, to be able to articulate that reason, but nevertheless, it exists. And for some reason there has to be something for us to push against in order to learn as nodes of the Godhead or whatever we might be conflict is what gives us meaning for some reason. It's weird. Mm. And I don't pretend to know why, but at this point, the why isn't as important as the how, because we're stuck here. We're, We're in the game. We're in the chess match. And you know, you have to learn the rules so that you can move on into them and master it. And part of learning those rules is learning what some people refer to as the shadow self, the, the darker ideas that pop into your head, those intrusive thoughts that you're uncomfortable with. We live in a society now where everyone wants to escape discomfort. You're being taught to escape discomfort. Don't, if you feel anxious, you're, you need to be on a medication. You're not supposed to feel anxious. That's weird. That's wrong. That's, that's not normal. Those are lies. Fear is the greatest teacher. Solitude is the greatest teacher. Fear teaches you that you're not prepared for something in a world where preparedness is everything. So we don't necessarily have to to enjoy being afraid or, or being uncomfortable, but we do need to learn how to honor it because that means you're in a station of learning. Um, one of the biggest teachings in the Necronomicon is the idea that fear and despair are great teachers. And one of the one of the things that it says over and over is that if you believe you've figured everything out, like if you have a belief system that gives you all the answers, like what, why, what's your point in even being here? You know, if you have already figured it all out, I mean, does your life have a purpose? You know, Hmm. what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, it reminds me of the process of ascension, you know, this other concept that I've read about, different authors, Dr. Doctor Joshua Stone has a bunch of books on this that I've read, and, and it's interesting, it gets into a lot of new agey, even theosophical concepts that I know H.P. Lovecraft was definitely ripping off, you mentioned that before we started, and you know, I personally, I don't need a book to tell me anything about Ascension, because I've had levels of improvement, we'll say in my mental, physical, and emotional health that have only been brought on by myself in a way, right? Of course, there are environmental influences and people who have helped me and people who I've learned from, but I put the work in. I dedicated my time to those practices and I saw the problems that I had and I worked to solve them. And and when I didn't solve them the first time, I kept trying, you know? and that's what's got me here. So I certainly believe that if it worked in this microcosmic way, we can extrapolate that possibly on a higher level to be like, you know, Hey, over many different soul lives, I'm going to be growing on this trajectory, right? This is just one little bubble in a much larger scheme of, of my, you know, life existence as a soul being. That's something that I've been taught just through, I mean, sure books and stuff, but direct experience and and a sort of faith that reassures that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, yeah, I I don't want to get too off off topic and tangent here, but you know, I could definitely wax prophetic on that for a while. There are layers to this and they're pretty undeniable once you start paying attention.
0: Right. Well, let's get into the, the Necronomicon because, as we were saying earlier, I live in Connecticut and H.P. Lovecraft, I believe, lived in Western Rhode Island or Southern Massachusetts, somewhere which is bordering Connecticut. And we have this legend at the Makamudas State Park, okay? And Makamudas is the name of the noisy god, right? This is what the local natives are. A lot of different tribes in this area some groups are the narragansett the mohicans who still have a presence here in the state and a couple others that are not really existent anymore Pequot but they had this legend about this state park that an angry god lived underneath the ground and scientists and even settlers you know early pilgrims and planters and whatnot they were all they all heard the noises. They called them the moodist noises, but the, the natives, they said, no, they're, they're not just noises. There's a God down there. And they would, you know, as colonists and Puritans, they're very superstitious. So anything the natives did was devil worship and devil this and that. So we don't know for sure if the native Americans truly thought of it as like evil, like the way we would consider in the Western mythology, the devil, they maybe more considered it like a an angry spirit that needed to be satisfied in some way. But the idea is that the natives would give some sort of, you know, food or some sort of sacrifice and just sort of drop it down into these caves to appease this loud, angry god there. And I believe H.P. Lovecraft pretty much just ripped this legend off and has a story called The Moodus. Something from Moodis. I'll have to look it up right now. But uh, but yeah, so I'm tangentially familiar with H.P. Lovecraft. I know he was in my neck of the woods, but he also is famous for a book called The Necronomicon, which kind of came up in a past conversation with alchemist Brian Cote Noir. He's a New York cool. City guy who talked about how The ne- Necronomicon got republished in the 70s by Some group, I forget who it was. It might have been Levay. I don't remember who he mentioned, but I guess James Wasserman had something to do with it or at least was in the scene. So there's, yeah, definitely some revival of this book in the 70s, but it was written. Let's see. The Necronomicon was written in 1922. So
1: the first thing I want to address is the idea that the Necronomicon is written by H.P. Lovecraft. This is, this is a lie. All right. There have been many Necronomicon. First of all, the word Necronomicon comes from from the Greek necros, which just means dead, and nomos, which means law. So it just means the way of the dead or the law of the dead.
0: Right. So he didn't yeah. write the book. He just he just used the, the term sort of like maybe playing on this concept that's very old and, and has existed right. way before him.
1: Yeah. So he, you know, much like Darwin, was exposed to concepts in the esoteric mystery schools or history. Now, how he came across these concepts I haven't done a lot of history research into his particular path, and so I don't know where he necessarily encountered these. But what I can tell you is that there's evidence throughout history, and I'm going to tie this all the way up to the Vatican, there's evidence that this book has existed, you know, potentially before the Common Era, or what most people refer to as before Christ. This book goes back thousands of years. And we'll get into that in a minute, but one of the things I want to really point out is that there really has been a tradition among people who become initiated into the esoteric mysteries of writing works of fiction and using narratives from esoteric mystery schools as part of their fiction. And sometimes it's like in the case of HP Lovecraft, totally ripping them off and, and sort of exposing them. And he, he actually it is, it's said pretty, Pretty clearly in esoteric mystery schools, that he was kind of, you know, excommunicated for uncovering a lot of this information, which was highly secret. And, there, you know, he's not the only person to do this. There's a lot of people who've done this. There's actually an amazing book, the author of which I don't have in front of me, but there's a book called The Cabal of the Westward Night, which does this in terms of the discovery of North America, dating back to potentially you know, the Persians and the Vikings. And he, he has tons of esoteric knowledge, which is hidden in a fictional narrative. And so H.P. Lovecraft did the same thing. He took knowledge, which has been passed down for centuries in esoteric mystery schools, and he put it into his books and he pretended he invented it. Mm. Just like Darwin pretended that he invented the theory of evolution, where we can go back and read, you know, some of the Sufi histories, or I think it's there's some in the Ramayana, you know, there are Indian texts dating back four or 5,000 years, which specifically describe evolution. And this is a classic thing that's been done throughout time is it's it's always been forbidden to uncover knowledge to the masses. And yet some some people get cocky and they start writing books and pretending that they're just fiction so that they can get away with saying, well, this isn't real. It's just all jokes, you know, but really... They're sort of sharing these ideas with the masses. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, there's a lot of different motivations, but one is that if you put something in the cultural lexicon or in the collective unconscious of the world, it makes it, it gives it more power. So if you are a student of dark energy, perhaps, just giving everyone the idea that this book exists makes you more powerful. So, you know, we have a great example would be Aleister Crowley. Who was not original at all? Ripped off everything he ever said. Everything he ever said was stolen from parts of books like this. And it's obvious that he had exposure to the Necronomicon as well. Crowley was, you know, he was an actor. He's a theater guy, and he was so good at he was a he was a grifter, right? And he was he was so good at it that people failed for it. Yeah, Levatsky. same thing.
0: Before we All get too op- far away from from Lovecraft, I do want to mention that book is written by David Brody, and that's a great book to suggest. It is fictional, but you're right, there's a lot of there's a lot of truth that they could hide in in fiction. And maybe they're not hiding it. Maybe they're putting it in plain sight and hiding it from the wrong people. But
1: yeah. Well, one one argument that could be made is that this information does need to somehow be preserved. And, and if you look at it with the right eyes and you do have a little bit of direction, mm-hmm. sort of like we're giving people tonight, you know, it is still preserved and you're not going to get persecuted the same way you would be if you were saying like this is history or this is a fact of the world. Right. You know, just talking about this information, some people would say is, you know, this is going to, you know, if you're a devoutly religious, for example, just talking about any of this is, you know, evil, right? And so as a way to protect themselves, they could potentially have decided to encode it into fiction so that they didn't have to die as a martyr or, or some kind of prophet, and yet still get the information out, which is fascinating actually in terms of a a technique because we have people who've done this and it has helped us a lot. A good example would be George Orwell or Ray Bradbury, right? You know, and we, we, we knew a lot about what a dystopian society was going to look like. Philip K. (laughs) Dick. Yeah. And look at what we're dealing with now. All, all that stuff is coming true. Right. So, and so like, what if we didn't have that stuff to fall back on? What if we didn't have those warnings? We would be less prepared. And so there is a value certainly in what Lovecraft did. It was dangerous in the way he did it. And, you know, he certainly had issues. If you research just a scratch the surface on him, you know, he, you know, this, his mind was definitely perturbed in many ways.
0: And isn't that the, the the greater truth, though, because we always hear this thing that all oh, the scientists were persecuted and all oh, the poor scientists, they were just trying to figure out how the world really worked and it wasn't just it you know science back then was occult science just as much as it was science science right so the lines were much more blurry than they are today they didn't even exist it was it was all one and the same it was gnosis it was knowledge and the the controlling empire would kill whoever they thought had too much knowledge and maybe we're spreading it in a way that could easily inform others that you know never goes over well with the controlling empire so yeah and and then we're told this lie that oh it's it was the scientists and were it, poor scientists and oh and the evil witches too those are the only people that burned at the stake
1: right <laughs> yeah no i mean like 300 years ago it was considered a crime to like dissect a body mm you know, how can we learn about medicine if we can't like get the actual physical contact, which some people refer to as gnosis, but, but you know, wisdom is a collection of knowledge. Knowledge is a collection of experience. And the only way to get experience is to, is to go get experience. Right. So, you know, just the idea that you couldn't dissect the body to understand how it worked. How could you possibly understand how to prevent its breaking? So I think these are pretty sneaky ways now that people are learning to disseminate this information. And of course, if you go listen to my podcast, I have a a disclaimer in the beginning saying that it's fiction because I'm nervous about disseminating knowledge. And you know, once you teach others power structures, pay attention, you know, and I mentioned this is going to go all the way up to the Vatican. Allegedly they're dangerous, you know, and we know what happens to people who get too much attention. You know, they get clinted. So...
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I Either. mean, I think the the title of this show maybe gives me a little protection because yeah. I'm, a, I'm a lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> so... <Totally. laughs> but I want to take it back to to HP Lovecraft because I do want to correct myself. So you're right. He's never written a book called the Necronomicon. He did write a book called the history of the Necronomicon, but it's, it's just sort of a Uh brief pseudo fake history to your point. Right. Using fiction.
1: Totally fake. Right. And so isn't it interesting though, that he gave it that title. Right. And isn't it interesting that this book resonated so deeply with the archetypes that people are familiar with. Mm. And so the archetype, that book goes into a lot of different things. But one of the things I want to talk about tonight are the old ones. Now, as evidence that these are archetypes that, you know, go beyond HP Lovecraft, Google claims to have been in contact with them. Are you familiar with this?
0: I have heard people mention it. I have, I've never seen the source material myself, but yeah, let's talk about it. Tell me what you know.
1: Well, so I don't want to go too deep into this because Google's definitely listening to us right now, but Alphabet oh. is a, another company.
0: We're not is, worried is. about that. We've had David Icke. We've had Michael Hoffman on the show. I know maybe you're worried, and I respect your privacy, but we could edit out whatever you, you need to, but please know. speak freely. <laughs>
1: I choose to tread delicately okay. in areas. That, so right. I've had, I have had friends who have had first person experiences that are very upsetting and bad things happen to them. So I don't take this realm lightly. And it's in, like I said, we're all talking about fiction, right? Potentially. But one thing I do want to emphasize is that, you know, the, the internet is not the arbiter of knowledge and it, this is why it's so important to get books in print and to reinforce your knowledge of the world with things that cannot be changed. printed books can't be changed and you need a breadth and a depth of knowledge as wide and as deep as you can possibly afford to accumulate in this, in this life so that you can synthesize that into a a cohesive theory. Right. And the way not to do that is by going to Snopes. The way not to do that (laughs) is by going anywhere that says this has been debunked. If you ever see that word somewhere run because right. those people are pretending to be the arbiter's knowledge. They're pretending to be the end of the road and there is no end of the road. The true nature of this reality is that it is always changing. It is extremely dynamic and there are different perspectives on in the human condition as to what that meaning is. And ultimately even books are all written by people. So you can't just rely on one. You have to rely on as many as you can get your hands on. So one of the things I would really encourage people who are interested in any esoteric knowledge is start acquiring books. And even if you get PDF versions and print them out, at least it's made permanent. Well, and so that to your point, so to start, to your one, point. one last thing, Go ahead, go ahead. We are actively witnessing the changing of history and to trick us and make us think that this is in our own psyche as some kind of, you know, mental illness, they've given it a name and they're calling it the Mandala Mandela effect. And And that is just changing of history. You know, there's a reason everyone has these collective memories of certain things being a certain way. They are being changed. Britney Spears dress is a perfect example. I have first person sources who work, you know, directly with her. And she is on the record herself saying that that dress was plaid, not black. And she's not great.
0: Isn't that something that you could easily computer generate? Like you could easily just take a plaid texture in a video and turn it completely black. I mean, yeah. easily. So that's all. I, I'm 100% with you on this manipulated Mandela effect. I remember the first time I ever heard about the mandela effect i was listening to a podcast while i was driving down the benjamin franklin parkway through philadelphia right where they did the philadelphia experiment but in this world this weird world where synchronicity comes into play i mean there's no denying synchronicity but real quick on the point of writing history i mean around this same time that we have people pulling down civil war statues we have this whole subculture on the internet growing and I'm not opposed to it. Don't get mad at me audience. I like the topic, but I'm very skeptical about the topic of Tartaria because what are we doing there? We're suggesting that there's this whole new or not new, but forgotten history. That's, I mean, apparently, you know, mentioned by CIA in certain records, you can look that up and yeah, people are spending, you know, whole YouTube channels, diving into oh tartaria this tartaria that and i'm interested i've had conversations with really smart people who who talk a lot of you know really interesting facts claims into the ether and and you know some sit with me some don't but i I definitely get nervous about that topic because that's what we're doing we're rewriting history and what is what is it that is in our actual history that you know could we could we be forgetting i mean the native americans to me don't fit into that equation at all right i mean th- they're suggesting that only 200 years ago there's this whole great civilization here with all these huge buildings and whatnot well i have 400 years of history in the state of connecticut that shows me a different picture you know i could look at you know old books that were written 200 years ago and they're pretty uh like plain plain stated on what's going on. They had farms, they were interacting with the natives, they are doing all kinds of stuff that didn't involve big steam engines and all this stuff they claim. Again, I don't want to be too divisive, but do you have any thoughts on Tartaria and, and this concept of rewriting history and psyops?
1: Well, at the very least, their timeline is skewed. I mean, I do believe that the history of North America is not what we're taught. And I do believe there, there was a lot going on here that has been obfuscated, but it wasn't 200 years ago. You know, it was was a lot longer than that. I have a book next to me on my shelf here called the Encyclopedia of Giants in North America. Mm. And when I worked as an adventure guide in North America, I got to spend a lot of time with the Navajo who called themselves the In Monument Valley. And one of the things I learned, and then subsequently from other tribes I got to spend time with, was that that a lot of native American tribes keep secret histories of North America that they don't share with white people or outsiders. I should say one of these histories is that is, is a common through line. You'll hear that I was fortunate to be exposed to at least in brief because I became trusted was the idea that there were races of beings in North America. When the native American tribes got here, they all talk about there being groups of giants in North America before they were here. And there, if, you, well, if you look through this book, The Encyclopedia of Giants in North America, there are more than a thousand instances of skeletons of giants being dug up, lots of proof, you know, and we have a culture around the world of giant architecture, the pyramidal culture, and we don't know how these blocks were moved. Right. Well, when, you, when you look into what they call that architecture, there's a hint. That architecture in esoteric history is referred to as Cyclopean architecture. Okay. What that means is they were moved by giants and the Cyclops was not a mythical being. It's described by the Greeks in detail. It was a giant. There were giants, you know, all over the planet. And there were also dwarves. There were also human cavernid hybrids or, you know, part goat, part humans. You know, there's actually a historical account of a bishop of a particular area sending a human capronid hybrid to Constantine packed on salt so that he could see it with his own eyes and the narrative that the Vatican has pushed very hard and that I believe the Smithsonian is an arm of is this idea that all humans were formed in one one way and now science has finally proven that there now we acknowledge more than 40 different species of people homo forensis, you know it was a tiny person living around the pacific rim you know we, there, there were, there were many different forms of the human monkey animal that evolved, you know, a Neanderthal, you know, homo erectus, you know, these, there were many, many different ones. And so to go back to North American history, I believe that there was a planet wide culture that was extremely advanced, you know, the, the pyramidal culture and most of this information, so much of it has been destroyed and obfuscated intentionally by power structures to deprive us, to, to deprive us. Of our sacred nature and true ancestry, I couldn't tell you one way or the other. I have no idea about Tartaria. I haven't gone down that rabbit hole. Is it outside the realm of possibility? Absolutely not. Was it recent? Absolutely not. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of years ago, if not thousands. And I believe, and this this is not you know none of these are my theories. A lot of people had these before me standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will. <laughs> but but a lot of people believe that the pyramidal culture around the planet was an advanced culture that somehow destroyed itself or, or was wiped out. Right, And I, I I believe that because you have evidence of, you know, cocaine in Egypt, you know, so they had some kind of contact with South America. You have evidence of extreme principles of alchemy around the planet, you know, jewels, in places there they shouldn't be metals in places they shouldn't be there's so much evidence that we at the very least we can agree that something has been hidden from us
0: right i mean you know is these crystal skulls and yeah. not to mention all the giant remnants and yeah i mean to go back to what you you said about what you've learned from the navajo and i appreciate you sharing that with us because yeah that is you know the type of information that you really need to be in in that I don't want to use the word privilege, but that might work for the sake of this conversation. You know, just the privilege of that's earned through trust and yep. friendship, you know. And uh, yeah, I read a similar story about the Iroquois that settled up, not where I live, but north of where I live. And one of their stories is that when they were traveling from where they came from, they ran into these weird mound builder people and had a tough time like crossing the great river the mississippi and you know eventually they made it and settled in what's now called new england but in new york but yeah it's it's definitely one of many many weird histories that we've heard on this show and i'm so glad you use this phrase cyclopean masonry i never heard that before and that's just yeah so so many interesting things can be found there, but yeah, Cyclops, really weird. So these giants, do you think they really had one eye or could it be that they had this like third eye that was really pronounced and they were, you know, maybe more oh, psychic it, than us?
1: I think, I don't know what kind of faculties they had. I mean, there's two different questions, but I think they probably came in many forms, just like right. humans come in many right. forms. We still have, you know, if you can look in medical textbooks and still see babies born with one eye, more than one eye, webbed hands, connected to another person. The world is, again, filled with wondrous variety. And this idea that we are homogenized species and we all look the same, it's its nonsense. You can Google human-caprinid hybrids, and there are multiple websites right now tracking things that are born with the top body of a human and the bottom body of an animal. And there's photographs from like last year. And you know, and these are, you know, real photographs from places like Africa, like deep sub-Saharan Africa and like, you know, the Congo and places in the boondocks where weird things are happening. And I'm not going to expound on that. I don't know if they're all true, but we have this narrative throughout all of human history about the pan, you know, the half goat, half human leading all the way up to Baphomet and, you know, and then the story of Constantine. I think that, there's so much wondrous variety and potential. You know, part. You know, we we know it's it's currently agreed in mainstream academia that we evolved from things from the water. Well, that means that there were probably part water things, part human. You know, things evolved at different rates, and tiny little isolations create incredible evolution. You can study. There, there are there are species of fruit fly on the Big Island of Hawaii where I was a guide for a while. And they exist in these tiny little patches of jungle in these huge fields of volcanic rock. So they're isolated from everything else because a fruit fly has a very small lifespan and you can see evolutionary changes in, in these fruit flies within two or three generations, just in these tiny little micro zones that they don't have the power to leave because the the time it would take to leave that little micro zone exceeds their lifespan. And you can track, Changes in them: two wings, four wings, multiple eyes. Everything's changing constantly, and it. And I believe Homo erectus represents simply the species that happened to beat all the others out.
0: Right now, yeah. mentioning the cyclops or the giants, do you think those are the old ones that H.P. Lovecraft is referring to? These sort no, of fallen angels.
1: You know, so the old ones refer to specifically seven archetypical dark entities. And so we can jump forward into the story because I don't want to go on for too long. Like we've already been going for a while and I do want to get to a lot of this. In fact, if you'll humor me, I have to plug my phone in. Do you mind if I go grab the cable real quick? I'm not sure if you edit this. I I apologize for the inconvenience.
0: No, no, no. Not an inconvenience. (laughs) Take your time.
1: Please forgive me. I'll be right back. (coughs) The <coughs> next <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, I'm on generator power here, so I oh, yeah. think I would have a, a, a charging station for my devices at every single power port, but I have to do some shuffling.
0: No worries. Yeah. Yeah, I took my mixer, the Roadcaster, out on the road last weekend and did some like in-the-field interviews, so to speak, just plugging it into a wall outlet, and yeah, definitely had to make some adjustments not not used to that
1: well i've been podcasting for like two or three hours already and so my phone is just <laughs> that is that spot but we're plugged in now sorry about that
0: no worries so you're telling us about the old ones
1: yeah so i want to give a brief history of the necronomicon to tie it into history a little bit because i did you know, mentioned that I don't believe it's, you know, originally from HB Lovecraft. There are, first of all, there are multiple Necronomica. So we have, most people are familiar with the the, the Tibetan book of the dead, for example. Have you heard of this book?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have a copy. There's also the Egyptian book of the dead as well. Right.
1: i It's just a Greek word for the exact same thing. The book of the dead. Right. So there are multiple versions. The version I'm referring to has an interesting providence according to Lovecraft and according to a lot of other sources. Um this book was written in the Middle East, somewhere around Yemen. And if Lovecraft and these sources are to be believed, they were written by a guy who may or may not have been called Abdul al-Hasrat. Now, interesting thing about Abdullah Hasred, he died in Damascus, supposedly around seven thirty or seven forty in the common era. So that's seven hundred and forty years after zero. There is an absolutely undisputed historian whose name is Ibn Khallikan, Khan. And he was a twelfth century historian and he wrote a book called The Deaths of the Earnest Man Men, excuse me and history of the sons of the, it's a, a 3000 page book. And it talks about a lot of people throughout history. There are glimpses of this character potentially in there. So regardless the providence of this particular Necronomicon comes from the middle East, possibly Yemen. And according to legends, it was translated by a Greek philosopher. Sometime And all these dates could be off, but at some point, possibly around 900 common era, a Greek philosopher translated this around the time of Constantine in Constantinople. Now, Constantine, if you study him, you'll know that he was one of the people who codified the Christian Bible. And he stripped the Christian Bible of 48 different books and kept the ones he liked. And this is sort of where we get the modern version of the Bible. Those 48 books that he stripped, by the way, are referred to as the Apocrypha. So if you want to go read those, they're fascinating. They talk about giants. They talk about half men, half other creatures. They talk about all the stuff that we've talked about today. In fact, hidden histories, esoteric knowledge. And you can, you know, they talk a lot about the book of Enoch is probably the most famous book of the Apocrypha. A lot of people have heard of that, but there's 47 others. They're worth reading. And some of them we only have fragments of. Enoch, for example, is is only in fragments. But like I said, once you start to digest a massive amount of information, you can start to see little details that pop out as through lines through all of it. So jumping forward, potentially, what the Necronomicon was, was a way to interact with spirit. Now, in the Christian tradition, before Constantine, spirits were essentially in in many categories. They used to refer to things called diamonds, which were positive entities without bodies, and demons, which were negative entities. And around the time of Constantine or the Council of Trent or any of these times when the Bible was changed or directed, you might say, they, they, they condensed a lot of this down. Demons were all made one bad thing, all evil. Let's see. Another example would be like uh, Lucifer and Satan are not the same being, but in the modern Christian tradition, they're the same thing. So there's a reason that there was a, an extreme nuance to a lot of this tradition. And we can see this even today where there is a reductionist binary view being implied in everything things are black and white. Well, it's pretty simple. You could just go out in nature and see that it has wondrous variety. Nothing's black and white. And this is true with history too. So I don't want to spend too much time on the history of the Necronomicon, but I will say that there are rumors of the, some of the original translations around the world. Some of the earliest ones come up in the 15th century in Germany. And the reason I bring this up is because some of the evidence that we that we have that the Necronomicon was a real book was because there was a papal decree um, of Pope Gregory the Ninth in 1233, and this decree was called the Vox Rama. You can look this up, and the Vox Rama essentially acknowledges that there were cults worshiping dark, non corporeal beings, specifically potentially in Germany. And he, he was basically calling for these cults to be wiped out. And according to the esoteric lore, it was the Necronomicon that they were worshiping. So, or, or at least interacting with. So the idea of this particular book of the dead actually extends back to King Solomon. You you remember King Solomon? Yeah. Okay. So King Solomon, for those uninitiated, supposedly built a temple where the legend of the Knights Templar comes from. And King Solomon, according to a lot of, you know, Hebrew texts, a lot of Christian texts was the last of a reign of Kings who kind of became perverted and may or may not have been interacting with non-corporeal beings or entities without bodies that could be referred to as demons. And there are actually two books, which survive up to this day called the lesser key of Solomon and the greater key of Solomon. And these all refer to ways to get the attention of these beings, right? Why this is interesting to me, at least is because if you follow the history of Solomon's temple, we know that they sent a bunch of knights over there right after Pope Gregory started the Crusades in around 1234, same Pope he said, you know, we need a crusade into, you know, uh, the Middle East, and, and rec- reclaim it for the Christians. So at one point, the Temple of Solomon was occupied by knights, Christian knights, who, who, according to history, excavated the temple while they were staying in it and uncovered some kind of treasure, which they then brought back to Europe. Now, whether or not you believe that is inconsequential. What we do know, and what is accepted is absolute historical fact, was that all of a sudden the Templars became very powerful in Europe, and we don't know why. All of a sudden they had extreme power and lots of money. And no one can say exactly how that happened. And this is a real question throughout history. What, did they bring some kind of treasure back from Solomon's temple? And what I believe they brought back was knowledge. And I believe it was related to this same history, the knowledge of how to interact with potentially dark forces or entities without bodies and get them to help them get them to give them knowledge wisdom teach them things and it, it is absolutely historical fact that around 1500 king philip of france on october 31st 1501 if i'm getting that date right it was a friday the 13th october 13th excuse me not i said 31st october 13th 1501. This is where we get the myth of Friday the 13th, by the way, the Pope decided that the Templar Knights had become too powerful and were potentially threatening the Vatican. And so they called them all heretics. They had them all rounded up and they began torturing them and, and trying to get them to confess as to, you know, how, why did they have so much power? What were they doing? And those confessions all revolved around the worship of a particular deity that I'm going to get into in a little while. In modern times, we refer to this deity as Baphomet, but when you study the Necronomicon, you find out that it's a perversion of one of the old ones. So my theory is that this knowledge passed from Solomon to the Temple Knights, the Templars, who was brought back to Europe, was used to make them very powerful, and the Vatican destroyed them, took this knowledge, and this is one of the reasons we're gonna be able to see evidence of Old ones worship in the Vatican to this day. So, having said that, I want to digress a little bit and, and give a couple places where supposedly copies of this Latin trans- translation from that same time period exist in Europe. Okay? Right. So, supposedly, there's a copy in the British Museum, there's a copy in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. Uh, in America, there's supposedly a copy at the Wildener Library at Harvard. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but I believe that's how you say it. Huh. The Mescatonic University at Arkham supposedly has a copy. The University of Buenos Aires. A few American millionaires are reported to have a copy. And then interestingly enough, now this is undisputed fact, there's an amazing book that you can read called The King in Yellow by R.W. Chambers. Pretty famous book. the the premise of this book, it it all revolves around characters in the book being exposed to a secret book that eventually leads them to go crazy. And the esoteric history of that is that the book they're being exposed to is the King. Excuse me. is the Necronomicon. Wow. Yeah. And that book's called the King in yellow. It's, it's an amazing work of fiction. Definitely worth reading. Fascinating. And if you read it through that lens, there's little hints in there. So, that's kind of the history and providence of where this version may have come up. And within the Necronomicon, there is an explanation of many things, but specifically of seven beings, which some of them have always existed. Some of them evolved on on the, on the plane here, but they don't exactly, have anything to do with our realm necessarily. They exist, as they say in the Necronomicon, in the space between the stars, in the dark places, right? And the seven names of these, you may recognize some of, they are um, Yig, Azithov, Sotep, Shub-Neguro, Sosa, Petulu, and the last one mo- is the most uh, well-known, Dagon. Okay. So I'm going to go through each one of these and I'll talk about why they are kind of archetypes throughout history. We're going to start with the one called Yig. So Yig is the cosmic serpent. Okay. And of course the first thing people think of is the serpent in the Bible, right? At least in Western culture, that should immediately come to mind. Mm -hmm. The idea behind Yig is that he's an incredible teacher of wisdom, but that wisdom comes at a price. So all of these entities are said to have positive and negative attributes with a few exceptions. Some of them are just negative, but Yig can be found around the world in every culture as the sacred serpent. So, in Egypt, they refer to them as APEP. Of course, in, in most Eastern religions, we have, like, dragons in China, right? You have Quetzalcoatl in Central and South America, or the feathered serpent. The Greeks referred to a cosmic serpent that encircled the world. We have the basilisk. And then, of course, you have a lot of serpent worship throughout India and, and all of Asia. The lore of the Necronomicon teaches that this was an ancient entity known as Yig, or at least referred to in modern times. Now I don't know if that was his correct name. But each one of these correspond to a heavenly body. And you can and one of the ways you can sort of cross-reference this stuff is really interesting is in Greek mythology because the Greeks took each one of their main deities or main cosmic forces and connected it to a planet and a metal frequently Right. Mm -hmm. And this stuff still ties into things like the chakras, And I'll get to that in a minute. You still with me?
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: So according to the Necronomicon, this, this entity Yig is the influence of the cosmic serpent. And the idea is that serpents possibly aren't even from this realm. They were introduced here by this entity. And this explains according to this cosmology at least, why we have an inherent fear of serpents, even though not all snakes are poisonous, far from it. But we all have an inborn fear of serpents for this, for this reason. And it also explains why in like Indian culture, the serpent responds to the flute because one of these other old ones is a flute player and we'll talk about him in a minute. But it's fascinating because each one of these corresponds to numbers as well. And I'm not super into like gematria, numerology. A lot of that's been perverted, but it's interesting to see the numbers as they correspond to different things. So Yig's number is 45. And you know, there, there's, you can actually, you know, study this stuff and even come up with like the chanting on how to, you know, invoke these entities, the, the different things with to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just talk about some of the main things, which I find really fascinating. Yeg supposedly corresponds to the constellation Draco, which of course is a dragon or serpent up in the sky. Now, if you look on any star chart, Draco is pretty prominent. And the idea is that this entity reaches its highest power in two times during the lunar cycle. And these are called lunar nodes. They're the places where eclipses happen. They're the places where the path of the moon's orbit crosses the path of the sun and all the other planetary bodies. Mm. Now the path of the sun and all the pla- other planetary bodies, they actually all take the same path across the heavens and it's known as the ecliptic. And it goes right through the Milky Way and across the sky. And it's always the same line, the line of the ecliptic. So if you can find one of the planets in the, in, in the heavens, you can find most of them because they all cross through the ecliptic. Interestingly enough, this, the planetary body that is associated with Yig is Saturn. Okay. And Saturn, of course, is where we get the word Satan. Right. So the influence of the cosmic serpent is supposed to be the, the influence of wisdom. But the price of that wisdom can potentially be materialism as opposed to the wisdom of spirituality, right? And this is why it's important to differentiate the idea of Saturn or Satan from Lucifer. Now, this is all too rope or too dry. Let me know and I can spice it up.
0: No, 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 no. I I should tell you maybe before recording that I usually mute myself just for, you know, various background noises to keep them out. So I'm totally with you. I just I'm not able to always chime in as quickly uh, because I'm I'm unmuting myself first. But no, I'm with you. And and I've been looking into Yale University Mm -hmm. because it's close by to where I live and there's a very strong Saturnian energy that's been implanted in not just New Haven's culture, but the city itself, the foundation of the city. So, yeah, this is all very interesting to me. I've had several conversations recently that involve serpents, guests talking about different serpent mythologies or theories about ancient cultures and their, you know, symbology with serpents. So, yeah, this is very interesting and and new to me. So no, keep going. All right,
1: so um in this cosmology, there is only well, okay, let's talk about um just the movement of the, the the planets and the stars. There's only there are only two places where we can have eclipses, for example, of the moon. And these are called lunar nodes. And and this is this is where the path of the sun and the moon cross. There's only two of these spots and they're referred to as the Caput Draconis and the Coda Draconis, which in Latin translates to the head of the serpent and the tail of the serpent, which I find interesting because this might explain why people were so afraid of eclipses. Hmm. And according to this cosmology, it's during those periods of eclipse, the darkness where this entity is potentially the most powerful. So whether or not you believe in that, it is true that there's only two places we can have eclipses and they are at the lunar nodes of the serpent, which is interesting. Coincidence, I guess.
0: Well, it makes me think of Khan in Mexico, the Great Pyramid yep. of the Sun, right? Isn't the uh, the shadow along the side of the pyramid said to look like a, a, a rising serpent yes. on two days right. of the year? Yep.
1: That's right. Wow. Exactly. So just for, you know, if anyone's interested the next, I don't know, you you can look this up on a lunar calendar, but the next eclipse in my neck of the woods is November 8th of this year. So that is supposedly when this entity is said to have the most power, Yig. But anytime you see the cosmic serpent, it is supposedly in reference to Yig. Now, I promised I would tie this into the Vatican, allegedly. (laughs) Have you ever seen their serpent's chapel?
0: Yeah, the inside of it looks like a viper's head. That's right. That is in reference to Yig. Wow. Yeah, it's the, is it the same as Ouroboros? Is that a similar or tied in concept or is that something different? Familiar with Ouroboros. The uh, snake eating its tail.
1: Yeah, same thing. That probably refers to, so like, yeah, anytime you see a cosmic serpent, it's in reference to the same entity. Okay, and, and the ancient Greeks believed it was a, a serpent that encircled the world, mm. you know. And like in the Celts, the we have the figure eight of the serpent, you know. So anyway, that, so Yig is one of the seven major old ones associated with Saturn and the number forty-five. Okay. okay, its material, the material associated with it, is lead, which is interesting because lead, as we know, is also toxic. A lot of serpents you know, the reason a lot of people are afraid of them because you know, they, they contain poison according to the esoteric history of that entity. They come from another, another world and they were put here as an expression of that entity. Mm. So I'm going to keep it brief on each one of these or or we won't get through each one of them, but those are the main points about Yig. It's fascinating though that we do have serpent culture around the world from, you know, not just non-competing societies, but societies who never had any exposure to each other, according to the classical narrative, at least all worshiping this. If I was in Nepal a couple of years ago, there are serpent temples everywhere and no one seems to be able to explain why that history has been lost every, which is fascinating. So that's the first one. According to the same Necronomicon, the second one is known as yag Sotha and corresponds with the realm of Jupiter. Now, interestingly enough, yag is supposedly not an entity that has a body at all, and is just expressed as different colored lights, which interact with one another. It is, just, it is said essentially that all the heavenly bodies and their motions are put in, into motion by this entity. Okay? His body is the universe, and anytime you hear the phrase "the all in one" and "the one in all," it's in reference, according to this cosmology, to this entity. All right. Stonehenge, for example, is said to be a site set up for worship of Yog Sothoth, meaning the celestial path of everything. Okay. And it's also written in this cosmology that any witnessing of this entity would be fatal. In the book of Thoth, it says, uh, how fatal is the payment for one glip, glimpse of his face. You also have reference to the Christian Bible actually, which I believe is an amalgam of a lot of these things tr- kind of like smashed into one viewpoint. You, you have lines in there that say things like, if you, you know, see the face of God, it, you know, it'll destroy you. Now, I, I find that quite conflicting with the idea that God is love according to the Christian tradition. I don't understand how love could destroy you, and so that's one of one of the, the the components of evidence for me, at least, where that cosmology has been perverted and potentially incorporating things like this. So, according to this cosmology, he's one of the first old ones to have existed, and he always exists. He's the gatekeeper. He's the keeper of the heavens, and at the eclipses, he's the one who opens potentially portals or gates into the stars whereby some of these other entities can transit and move around. Now, one of the things you read throughout the Necronomicon and you, you encountered within this cosmology is that our universe has constantly been in change and at different times, different entities ruled this world. And then it changed in such a way that it became toxic to them. So one of the things you keep reading over and over in all the different versions of the ne- this Necronomicon, at least, is that the stars are poisonous to some of these entities. And that's what keeps them from inhabiting this realm now. And they only interact with us through our ideas and through our minds. So the numbers associated with yag are 136, 34, and 16, <clears throat> excuse me, 16. The reason that's significant, if you were to write this entity's name out in Hebrew, in a square, all the Hebrew letters have a number associated with them. Aleph is number one, for example, every Hebrew letter has a sound and a number. And so when you write this out in Hebrew, it corresponds to a number sequence. So that's where these numbers come from, largely. Right. Okay. It's also interesting that they teach in the cosmology that if you try to summon this entity, To tie this into popular modern counterculture, if you try to summon this entity and you do it incorrectly, you're left as an empty vessel. And now we have this interesting concept of the empty vessel being, you know, the NPC, which I find fascinating. Yeah. But yeah. So all of these are archetypes which we see, you know, over and over and over, right? And, and you can and a cool way to study them is through Greek philosophy and the philosophy of the planets because when you study Jupiter, which is associated with sofa, Jupiter you know has specific attributes influences people in specific ways and that, and you can really study those and they correspond specifically to what's said about them in in a lot of these esoteric neronomicons. So pretty cool. So moving on. One of the more famous ones, and H.P. Lovecraft really, really went nuts with this one, was an entity called Cthulhu. Right. A lot of people have heard this. I think uh, even Metallica wrote a song called the Cthulhu. Hmm. Wasn't that Metallica?
0: I know there's Pretty- a song, maybe it was Ozzy Osbourne, I don't know.
1: Hmm. Anyway, it's interesting though, Dark, all these you know, dark metal bands, where were they getting all that knowledge? Were they just pulling it out? Who knows? But the Cthulhu corresponds with Mars, and if you study you know, like the Greek history of Mars, it it was kind of a warrior. The energy, you know, Mars is the red planet, energy associated with iron. Of course, iron is the thing that makes our blood red. It's also associated with being fiery and angry. You know, he was a warrior. Cthulhu is supposed to be a being that is massive, gigantic, has leather wings like a bat, has the form of a human, but has a face kind of similar to, not to make a, A cheesy reference, but you remember, I don't remember which one it was, but one of the, what's those Disney pirate movies from Johnny Depp? The
0: Pirates Uh, of the Caribbean?
1: And then they're one of those entities has like an octopus face.
0: Oh yeah, this is like their second edition of the movie, the Davy Jones character.
1: That character's face is, when you read the description of Cthulhu, you realize it's kind of ripped off. You know, that character's kind of ripped off from Cthulhu because supposedly it was just like a, a, a bunch of different branches hanging down in front. But he didn't have the face of a man. He only had one eye in his, in his head, maybe three eyes. There's multiple descriptions. But it, his head was not solid. It was made of a weird material that would constantly move around. And there's also stories saying, you know that talk about, like, the octopus, specifically, being related to this entity. And it's fascinating to think about how the octopus, it, it seems so foreign to our world. It, it's very intelligent. It has all these crazy tentacles. It can change shape. It can change color. You know, it's very, uh, very strange. Well, Cthulhu is interesting because he is said to be kept in a tomb under the oceans. Okay. He's one of the ocean deities and he's one of the deities that supposedly is kept at bay by the stars. They've become poisonous to him. Okay. And so he's kept in this place until the end times, if you will, where he'll come back and destroy the world, which is interesting. And we'll get into that later. I'm not a super fan of revelations, but there are references in there to being similar to this, you know, and his, his metal is iron, which of course, you know, corresponds to red in your blood, et cetera. Right. And his number is three twenty five and 65. So each one of these, it's interesting that we have all these metals, we have, you know, corresponding. If you study the chakras, you know that each one of the chakras corresponds to a metal. Each one of the chakras corresponds to an energy center in the body. And it's really easy for everybody to identify, you know, the heavenly body, the moon, because we all admit that the moon changes the tides and the moon affects the water and we're mostly water. So the moon must affect us. Well, in esoteric history, it's taught that each one of these heavenly bodies affects you. It affects the iron in your body. It might affect, you know, the gold in your body, the lead, whatever. Mm. But it's fascinating to correspond them to the shoppers because this cosmology essentially says that these, these entities affect you in different ways, negatively. And each one of those energy centers, in order to purify it, you have to overcome that influence. So the influence of you to be a warrior and destroy things and to become hot blooded, you may have heard that phrase that comes from the influence of Cthulhu supposedly. Okay. Well, interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, my name is Mark. That's essentially the word Mars or at least some variation of it. And yeah, I feel that myself as a martial artist, like there's definitely a disconnect between me and martial arts lately as of the, Plandemic. I haven't trained and yeah, I find myself probably needing that to temper myself. Cause yeah, it's, it's not, it's not good to, to lose your temper and get hot headed.
1: Well, you know, these, the planets are also encoded in every day of the week.
0: Mm, right.
1: Sunday is the sun. Monday. Well, what's Monday? Moon day in Latin or in Spanish. <laughs> it's Luna. Right. That's, you know, that's, that's Luna, the moon. Tuesday in Latin languages is mirac- which is Mars, you know, each one of the days of the week corresponds to a heavenly body as well. So these are archetypes of the energy, which are influencing you and in, in potentially different energy centers that have to be overcome. So it may be helpful, not necessarily to think about these as like monsters that live up in the heavens, but as potential monsters that live within you, if they're not tempered properly mm-hmm. through spiritual alchemy, you might say. Right. right, Okay, so the next one, speaking of Sunday, we have the sun, and, and as a thought is the person who supposedly corresponds, or this is the name in the Necronomicon that corresponds to this sphere, and the metal is gold. Now, what does the sun do for us? Well, we one thing that we will admit scientifically and historically is that the sun is the source of our life can't live without it. It creates vitamin D among other things, you know, without the sun, all life on Earth will die. So as a thought is supposedly the flute player who plays the world into existence. And we can see this archetype in a lot of places for the native Americans, for example, it's the Coco hmm. right? Or perhaps you can think of any of the, any of the stories where a flute player comes in and starts um, hypnotizing people and drawing them away that they this is all the same archetype. All right. And the idea is interesting because if you have a flute player, well, what is music and what is sound? What's a kind of vibration? And science tells us that everything is vibrating, right? So everything is vibrating potentially according to a kind of cosmic music. We also have a lot of, a lot of the ancient philosophers referring to the music of the spheres meaning the sound which comes from all the heavenly bodies and animates life. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is the flute player archetype, but it's also the archetype for vibration throughout the world. And one of the main concepts that's put forth in this cosmology is that everything has a has a subtle kind of imperfection created within it, which allows it to come to a crescendo within its existence. And then so that vibration puts everything together. You can think about the progression of a human being from a baby that things are kind of like, you know, coming together. You can't even walk. You can't talk. You have to learn all these things. You crescendo hopefully into a human at a certain point in your life and then things begin to fall apart again. Well, according to this cosmology, it's because of the imperfection built within the system that allows things to come together and then be taken apart. Right? And why do things have to come apart? Well, because all those individual components are then put together into something else. Hmm. When our body goes into the ground, it gets taken apart and it gets put together into another body. I heard a cool statistic the other day that you you have a ninety nine point nine percent chance every breath you take of breathing in the same air that Julius Caesar exhaled when he died. Huh. And that's true actually with any person before a certain amount of time and uh, you know, the math is inconsequential here, but you can calculate it. Essentially the volume of, of material in any one of your given breaths can be spread around the entire planet, molecularly speaking, right? So everything is connected in the sacred way, which is pretty crazy to think about everything's in flux. So this archetype, as a thought is the idea that everything is vibrating, and everything which is being created will then be destroyed. And this it's interesting because his metal is gold, and his number is six six six, the mark of the beast, according to the Christian. Right now, what's the what is the beast supposed to do? As so well as he's supposed to usher in the end times to destroy everything. Well, in this cosmology, it's also that which creates and puts everything together first. And the way they explain this is first comes summer, then comes fall, then comes winter, right? So everything comes in spring, you know, the seeds are planted in the summer. They grow in the fall. They begin to wilt. And then the winter they die. It's a natural part of the process for things to be destroyed. And so just like the flute player or the vibrations of our world bring us all into existence, those same vibrations will one day take us out of existence. And so according to this cosmology, the Christians are only looking at half of the problem. They're only looking at the end, but in this cosmology, that same energy is what has put everything together in the first place, Right. which I think is fascinating.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we've gotten so through Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, yeah, the, sun. the sun. Yeah. Okay.
1: So next we have Venus. And in this cosmology, it's known as Shub-Niggurath, the goat with a thousand young. Now I mentioned Baphomet earlier. Baphomet is potentially an expression of the same deity in this cosmology It's a female with the head of a goat and a womb, which never ceases giving birth. Okay. Constantly giving birth to ideas of all kinds. And, and because this isn't a cosmology focusing on the dark side of things, constantly giving birth to ideas that are negative. So if you've ever wondered why your mind will all of a sudden have these intrusive thoughts that are negative, part of this cosmology believes that those are always being born and you have to overcome them. They will never stop, you know, in their procession. And so this is Venus. Now Venus is pretty synonymous with love, for example, or more accurately with copulation and the birth of things. So the positive potential side or the opposite of this energy would be creating things, the womb, sacred womb of creation, right? And in the Necronomicon focusing on the dark side of things, this is the womb of the night, the womb of negative things. So in my worldview, there must be an opposite. I believe there's an opposite to everything. Everything has an opposite and a neutral. So this, this, uh, the metal associated with this deity is Venus, uh, as copper, excuse me. And she's associated with human sacrifice, which is interesting. This potentially ties into that Templar story because they said they were worshiping an entity known as Baphomet and the description they gave is strikingly similar to the description of this deity. Supposedly a head of a goat, arms of a human being, the legs of a goat and a torso covered in breasts in order to nurse for many young, those dark entities, right? Hmm. It's interesting also that in Hebrew text, it's said that she's referred to as Lilith. Have you heard of Lilith?
0: Yeah. I I just had someone reach out to me who claimed that they are Lilith themselves. Shout out to Which, you. <laughs> kind of terrifying.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this entity is, you know, according to the Hebrew tradition, Lilith was the wife of Adam before Eve. Wow. And one, one of the, one of the lesser known concepts of that was that she, would make love to Adam on top. And so in all the rites concerning Lilith, the woman is on top. And there's there's a lot of orgies and sexual rites that are associated with the worship of Lilith or Shabnegarath or the goat of a thousand young. You can also trace this back to Babylonian belief systems. And there's a modern, the Babylonians describe an entity and we have a modern name for this entity. The name doesn't come from Babylonian, but they give the exact same description and a lot of people are familiar with this. It's the idea of the succubus. Hmm. A non proportional entity that comes to you at night to steal your seed. Yeah. Steal a man in order to create demonic beings. Fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the side of this entity. Her number is 1,225. Again, that derives from her name in Hebrew being numbers all being added up. That's kind of related to Gematria, but I don't want to go down that wormhole too far. So we got two more, two more, and these are pretty interesting ones. Okay. Okay. So now we have Mercury, Mercury, uh, Mercury is associated in this Necronomicon cosmology with an entity called Nyarlathotep. Okay, and, uh, and and we know which metal mercury is associated with. Associated with mercury, <laughs> right? <laughs> you study the Greek cosmology. You know, you know that mercury is kind of like a winged messenger, right? Well, in this cosmology, Nyarlathotep is the messenger of the old ones. Nyarlathotep is the one who allows people to communicate with the old ones. So supposedly this entity can take the form of a man who is tall, always wears black robes. The only difference being it doesn't have a face. And if you study the esoteric history, it's one of the things that they teach cosmology of this Necronomicon is that the Sphinx, for example, one one of the things that they say about the Sphinx is that its face has been recarved. Have you heard this?
0: Yeah, apparently even a Napoleon went along and shot a piece of the nose off as part of what I heard one person say.
1: Yeah, well, I, I believe it's pretty commonly accepted that the, the face of the face that we currently see was not the original. Hmm. And according to this cosmology, one of the reasons may have been that it was supposed to be in reference to Nyarlathotep or Mercury, and it had no face. And so it was kind of a blank canvas. So some, you know, pharaoh maybe, or some, some some later ruler came along and said, well, put my face on that. Right? Wow. But according to this cosmology, this this entity is an eater of souls. So when we hear about stealing louche, when we hear about negative energy being created intentionally, it is possible that this is one of the entities that consumes it, or at least it is according to this cosmology. and. His brother is the sacred flute player. Supposedly all of these entities are related. Okay. This particular entity, one of the reasons it's allowed to interact with human beings is because the stars don't affect it. That's why it's known as the messenger. If you want to understand more, read the Greek references to mercury fascinating descriptions. The idea is that anytime you hear the phrase, the chaos that creeps within esoteric schools, or the many formed messenger. It's all in reference to the same entity, we'll say, right? So supposedly could take any form, but specifically appears to people in their thoughts and in their dreams and loves to corrupt them, people who are drinking. This is one of the reasons that we refer to, according to this cosmology, we refer to alcohol as spirits, because being perverted like that really attracts this entity and allows him to influence you. And if you know anything about booze, when you start drinking, people start acting potentially out of their character. And people actually use that phrase. I was acting really out of character. Well, in this cosmology, it's because you were being perverted and influenced by this entity. Pretty interesting. And, And there is actually one kind of really interesting thing that I read in one of the histories of this cosmology that I think is funny. The way that his worshipers were ordered to pay homage to him, was by giving him a kiss on his anus because he found this to be really funny and it's <laughs> corruption. Now, one of the oh. histories of this cosmology is that the old ones were actually responsible for our creation and they created us as a plaything to be, to be you know, fucked with essentially, oh. if you'll forgive the purple language. And all right. in evidence of this, they offer the idea that our organs of reproduction were placed right next to our organs of excretion. And, and a lot of other animals, these are separated and and supposedly in, 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 a lot of higher entities, they're completely separate, but they did this to us as simply to, you know, to make fun of us, which I find an interesting and fascinating principle because evolution is not lazy. Evolution is pretty efficient. And so it could be a, a, a concept of efficiency, but it's interesting to, to put forth the proposition that it was done intentionally to degrade us. Hmm. And that's what this cosmology said. And Niall the had a hand in that. So the last one is Dagon. And Dagon's associated with the moon. Now, Dagon's fascinating because it's probably the most easily associated with the Vatican, because it's associated with the mitre hat. And if you don't know what a mitre hat is, it's that weird hat that, that all the, the the folks in the Vatican wear. And if you look at it, it's, it's, it looks like a fish head with a mouth open and they always have some kind of little patch on the side that looks like the eye. Right. So of course, if you were to Google this, you'd see really quickly a lot of references to Dagon being fish god.
0: Well, and we and also so suppose- have the, the Dogon people who believe in the Nomo, fish people.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, in the Hebrew text, they refer to Leviathan. That's supposedly the same God. Anytime you hear history and lore referring to the Kraken, you know, this monster that comes up from the deep, <laughs> right. that could either be Cthulhu. You know, it, it's also like described to be like a giant octopus, which is reminiscent of Cthulhu, mm-hmm. or supposedly could be reminiscent of Dagon. Hmm. And, it, it, you know, along with Hebrew texts and tradition, we have, the uh, Christian tradition, according to this, the Canaanites were big fans of worshiping Dagon. Really? And, you know, this was supposedly an entity which inhabits the oceans, can't go higher than the high water line, has like really shimmery skin, is very similar to like a merman with like a dolphin head, essentially. But I, I find it absolutely fascinating that the miter hat is connected deeply with this and, and you can, you know, just Google miter hat Dagon and you can find tons of references to this. And it's kind of pretty obvious that they're like, yeah, where did they get that goofy hat look? Why does it look exactly like a fish head? And why is Dagon supposedly responsible for teaching us the ways of like agriculture and a lot of these secret knowledges? right? Mm.
0: Yeah, that, what yeah. Are... go ahead. That reminds me of a story I just heard from a, a person t- telling us about Seattle, Washington, and some of the legends that they have there about a a man. Of the native lore is that there's a man or a god underneath the ocean who shares all these riches with them that wash up on shore.
1: That's okay, so in this cosmology, the Necronomicon kind of cosmology, the children and of Dagon. Are the finest jewelers ever known?
0: Wow!
1: And then, of course, we come up. You know, this reminds everybody of you know lost treasures at sea. But that story you just told me ties right into this cosmology. You know, and it's fascinating that that comes Mm. from native people. You know,
0: well, and dude, I mean, geez, I love everything you're saying. I know we're we're through all seven, but is there anything else you'd like to share about the old ones or? you know, final points you want to make before we wrap up here?
1: Well, I would encourage everybody just to think about them as archetypical energies, which influence rather than maybe like mystical beings. I mean, it could be either, but I don't necessarily, and again, me presenting this information doesn't necessarily mean that I completely believe it, but I think these archetypes are absolutely fascinating. We do see a certain culture of, of, you know, the wise fish culture, the, all these things. And if the more that you research these archetypes, the more that you see them in everything, you know?
0: Right. Right. And it speaks to what we were saying before about how Lovecraft is, is basically using this sort of fictional front to share esoteric ideas. So yeah, maybe he's putting somewhat of a spin on it, but no, you're absolutely right. There's a syncretism, a higher truth parallel nature to these things that speaks to it being much older than his authorship. For sure. Yeah.
1: And that's, you know, that's the whole point I want to make is like, you know, allow yourself to transcend what he did, ignore the names that he used, because these, you know, it's highly unlikely that those are the names that have passed down from, you know, the, the beginning of time. But if you think about them in terms of heavenly bodies, if you research the Greek history associated with each one of those heavenly bodies, because the Greeks personified these two, but they did an excellent job of really getting into detail about the attributes of each and how each would affect you. And then we talk about the chakras and you, all you have to do is look up a quick chakra map of those same heavenly bodies. And they each correspond to a different chakra within your body and an energy center. And what you realize and what my, my whole takeaway here is that I believe they represent the negative attributes to each one of our potential energy centers that have to be overcome mm. in order to perform your spiritual alchemy.
0: Right. Right. And and H.P. Lovecraft's first work he ever put out was titled The Alchemist. So look at that.
1: <laughs> there, there you go.
0: <laughs> wow, man. Yeah. Maverick Matthews. Thank you, brother. This has been a, a trip down many different lanes, all very wise and well said. And I got to give you, all the credit for putting all this together in the way that you do. Cause yeah, it doesn't really necessarily need to be factual for us to garner incredible value and meaning, you know, and this is definitely meaningful. It fills in some blanks. Even I think HP Lovecraft represents this sort of like morbid or even morose influence on uh, American culture through horror and then science fiction sort of fills also a role because he does play on some of those themes as well. But you see this really first wave of what becomes a mass pop culture kind of seeded with these ideas from this time when, you know, people would sort of be insulated within their town and what where they could travel and what they could read that came their way. But there was no you know, mass entertainment of any kind, it, it's it sort of laid the foundation, all these occult, esoteric themes. And now people have whole YouTube channels devoted to, you know, diving through the symbolism of pop culture and, and finding these occult threads in today's work and I'm sure H.P. Lovecraft has been ripped off in the same way that he's ripped off the ones who came before him but we here in the podcast realm we like to give credit to those who have taught us and I got to give you a whole bunch of credit and if you could before we wrap up here tell everybody where they can follow up with you and and what to look out for anything new that you have coming up obviously you've been doing research on this topic that we discussed at length today and i'm looking forward to hearing you discuss this with sam i'm sure you'll have new stuff to to share as well by then but yeah please tell us what your what we can expect from you moving on into the future
1: well first mark let me say thank you for having me on thank you to your audience for indulging this i'm sorry if it got dry there for a while no um,
0: no i'm i'm not just you know play in your ear by saying I'm not feeling well I had like a big fever the past few days so this has been a little bit out of it for me but I definitely enjoyed listening to you describe that so no no need to no need to make any disclaimers I thought that was great
1: well I appreciate it brother you know this this dive into this particular area represents only one of the subsets that I'm into you know so I try to balance it obviously I mentioned my podcast. If if you want to find out anything about me, you can go to maverickmatthews.com. My podcast is actually a collection of it's never for your sake is like words of some kind where it'll either be me talking about something or frequently I have interviews, but it's also a collection of electronic music for training. I'm really into using vibration for healing. And I believe that electronic music evolved organically to to be kind of a a vibrational version of of our body. And so you can think of the bass as a heartbeat. You can think of all the other tones as potentially corresponding to different energy centers. So without being too verbose on it, go check that out. I'd love your feedback on that. Uh, And then we mentioned that Nick and I are doing some new segments that are comedy on there. That's pretty cool. I do have some t-shirts on my website that I sell for the biological sovereignty movement. So if you want to support me, that's one of the best ways to do it. And then I actually have a coffee table book coming out which is completely different, unrelated to this, I did some painting. I'm going through a pretty painful divorce right now and trying to deal deal with the custody battles of having a a three-year-old. And one of the ways I I tried to channel that alchemically into positive energy was I did some painting. So I painted a series of paintings about campfires and I'm releasing those into a coffee table book, which I'm binding myself in wood. It's a pretty cool little art project. So if you want to check that out, go to my website, maverickmatthews.com.
0: Wow. So you're doing these all yourself. I imagine there's probably going to be a limited amount. People should get on that right away, huh?
1: Well, I appreciate that call for urgency. They're going to be made to order and they're going to be a little more expensive because I am finding them myself. It is a process that takes, you know, significant amount of time. There'll be a whole sort of unpackaging and presentation on my site pretty soon. I'm hoping to have that up by the end of the weekend, but uh, yeah, it's a, Creating the book itself is an extension of the artistic process for me. And so they're they're all handmade. They're individual. The paintings are pretty cool. You know, the images that are in there. And ultimately, this was a catharsis for me. And so it helps me, you know, defer the crazy costs of of a divorce. You know, I've dropped like more than $30,000 on this thing now. So it's, it's hurt me financially. And my podcast is not monetized at all. So if you really want to support my efforts and, and get a cool piece of unique art, this is really how I'm trying to trying to create it, it, it as opposed to just like asking, Hey, help my GoFundMe or something, you know, I wanted to channel it into something cool. Yeah. So That's my, that's my attempt.
0: That's awesome, man. I really appreciate you sharing that with us and, and with the world. I think that's a great way to transmute that those deep emotions that you're, you're going through, I'm sure. So yeah. Wow. That's really cool and, and powerful. So, I look forward to seeing that. And I'm, I'm sure this episode will be out by the time, if you, if you're going to have that out this week or next week, I have like five episodes recorded before this. So this will be out oh, in mid August about.
1: Oh, perfect. Perfect. So yeah, yeah people
0: it, will be it'll be able to then. go and check uh, that out right away.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity, Mark. And I look forward to, you know, developing our friendship. It was really great to finally connect with you and uh, hopefully we'll get to meet in Meet space at some point.
0: Likewise, man. Yeah. Thank you for, for saying that and pleasure's all mine. It's been an honor to talk to you as a friend of Sam Tripoli's, you're a friend of mine. And uh, yeah, I've always appreciated hearing you on other podcasts, including your own. So yeah, it's about time that we have you here and I hope to to get into some of the things that we left on the table in another conversation especially the point about electronic music I mentioned I use music in this show I'm not musically inclined enough to know the maybe Hertz or frequency of the music I'm using I'm just sort of playing by ear no pun intended but but yeah I'd love to incorporate some of your music into this episode. If you have any tracks that I can download for free, or I'll I'll buy some of them if you have some for sale. But yeah, that would be really cool to mix some of those into this episode, and then maybe we can have another conversation in the future about the healing science of vibration.
1: Oh yeah, the beat. Yeah, I'd love to talk cymatics with you. I just released an album called Mindfire. It was composed around the same time of the paintings. It's on my website download and if i think i have your email oh yeah i I, at least i have the booking email If i'll send you a download code and you can download it and uh, yeah feel free to to use it as you wish
0: right on awesome yeah definitely gonna use that in this episode so folks listening you're about to hear some of that yourself and be sure to go check out maverickmatthews.com to follow up with everything that maverick has going on as for now Enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, and that is our conversation with Maverick Matthews, a sought-after guest, someone who I'd hoped to talk to at some point in the course of this podcast. And speaking of the course of this podcast, we are almost at episode 200, folks. Damn, it's really cool, really incredible. Speaking of podcasts, check out Maverick Matthews' podcast. It's called Pepper For Your Steak. That's right, Pepper for your stake, and you can find it in the same app that you're listening to this podcast on or youtube or wherever you find yourself in the ever expanding now here i am summing up so many great things talked about the old ones we talked about the cyclopean architecture i mean that to me was a big one of those ideas that connects a lot of dots right and there are a few of those episodes in store. This is just episode 198. 199 is going to be incredible. 200 is going to be mind-blowing. It's going to be astounding. I hope you guys enjoy it. As far as me, I've been uploading a lot of that on the Patreon and the Rockfin lately. Been working hard. Putting all the great content, early release content, on the Patreon on the Rockfin for all of our supporters. So what are you waiting for? Help us out, and even if it's just a one-time donation, I mean, you know, it would be really incredible if everybody who listened gave five dollars. If I had five dollars from every single person that listens to this show, I could fix my car, get a new car, uh, and maybe move into a better apartment or. Find my own property, because that's the goal. We want to get on our own property, become self-sustainable. I've got this aqua cure machine that George Wiseman sent me, and I'm so excited to start using it. Right now, I'm working on figuring out how it works, how to operate it, and so on. But I've got a lot of big plans in store. Episode 200 is right around the corner, so please support the show with a one-time donation or a subscription and hey if you don't like patreon or rockfin i don't see how you couldn't like rockfin but i understand if you don't like patreon but you still want to give a monthly subscription to the show and get access to bonus content you can now use a the link in the description on the Kofi store and you could subscribe to a membership through the Kofi store so it's spelled k-o-fi Coffee, coffee. I don't know how people spell it, but or say it, pronounce it, whatever. Here I am, summing up a fantastic episode, episode 198 with Maverick Matthews. Please go to maverickmatthews.com, of course, if you want to get more Maverick Matthews. And that's all for this episode, folks. Thank you for listening and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now.
2: me going the circuit uh, i'm peeking through the curtain nothing is for certain but i feel it like a purpose wait i'm peeking through the curtain hardly feeling like a person but the vibes are perfect uh, i'm peeking through the curtain nothing is for certain but i feel it like a purpose wait my third eyes open and my chakras flowing all seven channels in my spirits floating knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean it's the fold path and the sacred lotus uh. i'm peeking flipping through akashic records my ego's decomposing like a leopard i'm mega casey going some levitation so with zero hesitation as i jump into the spaceship i'm weary from thinking like a earthling while skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling I'm spiraling sacred geometry, studying my old selves like it's anthropology. Honestly, feeling like life's a comedy, as big a game as a paper-run economy. I've been playing safe, the safest for the weaker heart. Wait, I'm peeking, tearing everything apart. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service, can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. Curtain. hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect, uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose, wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies, I lay the rest, the ego, and the frequent themes, that keep me seeing life inside a box, small minds kick rocks, Pandora, less us talk, uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space, I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes, I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite. And every time I'm peeking, I can see it for an instant. I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd. Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl. Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles. Consumerism living in their vacant smiles. Uh, Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky. I ain't even got to try gaining wisdom on the fly. I'm touching base with things I can't explain. Gods without names on a different plane. Wait. I'm peeking through the curtain, cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain, hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain, cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. is for certain but i feel it like a purpose wait i'm peeking through the curtain hardly feeling like a person but the vibes are perfect uh, i'm peeking through the curtain nothing is for certain but i feel it like a purpose wait